0: Now, this might come as a surprise to some of you, but, but I am a type A personality. Why are you laughing? I know, it's hard to believe, I know. But, but I've been this way as long as I can remember. A few years ago, and, and when you get to be my age, and you guys who are close to my age will understand this, when you say things like, a few years ago, it's really a lot longer ago than you think it is or was. But a few years ago, I was at my folks' house, and we, we came upon an old report card of mine. Now, this was from the days before report cards were digital. They were handwritten. And the teachers would write your grade in a column, and then they would write a comment about each kid under the grade. Imagine if they did There would be lawsuits today if they did this. But back then, that's what they did. So... That particular year, I don't remember what year it was, but every one of my teachers wrote something to the effect of, Russell would be a good student if he could only sit still. Or Russell would be a good student if he could only stop talking, if he could only shut up, right? I know, hard to believe. And of course they weren't wrong, because legitimately I never sat still and I never shut up. I know, hard to believe, again... But I'm a high-energy person. My whole life, I popped out of bed, and I'm raring to go. And then I get to my pillow at night, and I'm like, "Oh, exhausted," and I fall asleep because the day was just so fast. I just live at this breakneck pace. I was talking to, to Matt back there, and, and maybe some of you can can relate to this. Do you do this? Do you you sit in your house and, you know, maybe you're sitting there quietly, maybe you're reading or something, and then the air conditioner or the refrigerator cycles off and you feel your body go, does anyone do that? I do it. I notice it all the time. And it's because this tension is built up all the time and when things get calm, what the heck is that? You know, what is that? Calmness. But I don't like, I don't like sitting still. And as a result, I don't sit still very much. And when I try to sit still, I'm terrible at sitting still. Well, a few years ago, someone introduced me to something called the Enneagram. The Enneagram, there's a definition, is the system of personality typing. It's like Myers-Briggs or what, what is your color, things like that. And it describes patterns in how people interpret the world and manage their emotions. So according to the Enneagram scale, and I took the test, I am what is known as an eight. There are nine categories, and I'm an eight. And an Enneagram eight is known as the challenger. That's my Enneagram. And it basically defines as the powerful or dominating type. So eights are described as self-confident, strong, assertive, protective, resourceful, straight-talking, and decisive... But, of course, then they give you the negatives, and and eights can also be a bit egocentric and a bit domineering. And eights feel they have to control their environment, and they have to control the people around them. And sometimes eights can become confrontational, and other times eights can be a bit intimidating. So eights typically have problems with their tempers, and they also have problems allowing themselves to become vulnerable. So at their best, eights are self-mastering, self-motivating. They use their strength to improve others' lives. Eights like to be seen as heroic. Eights like to be seen as magnanimous. Eights like to be seen as inspiring. So I took this test, and and by the way, it's kind of fun to take. If you're ever interested, shoot me a text, I'll send you the link. It's kind of neat. It doesn't cost anything. And it's always interesting to understand who you are. And, And while this information helped me to understand the way that I am, it didn't do anything to stop me from being the way that I am. I'm wired as a type-A energized person. In other words, I just don't stop moving, I just don't stop striving, I just don't stop driving or challenging, and I probably never will. And yes, there are positives in being this way, but it's not without its negatives. And when you take a person who's wired the way I'm wired and put me into this world the way the world is, something happens, and it isn't a good thing that happens. And though I know a few of you are wired in the same way that I am wired, most of you aren't, which is, thank, thank God you're not, by the way. But it doesn't mean we all aren't negatively impacted by our hyper-paced stimulus overloaded world in a similarly not good way. Well, a few weeks ago, a pastor friend of mine who pastors a church in Athens, Georgia, boo, sorry, Bulldogs, but he's also part of our Irresistible Church Network and he recommended this book to me, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, written by a pastor in in Portland, Oregon by the name of John Mark Comer, young guy, So I picked up the book, and I I just read the whole thing. Just one sitting. I read the whole book in one sitting, and I hated it. I hated just about everything in it. But I didn't hate it because it was wrong. I hated it because it was right, and because it was convicting. And then I thought, hmm, it's November. And November is the month that kicks off the holiday season the most anticipated season of our year. We love the holiday season as a culture, but also it kicks off the season of holiday stress. This is that time of year when stress levels just go way up and things get even busier. It is the busiest and most stressful time of the year by all metrics. So because of that, I think we could all benefit from abandoning that pace that the world has just sort of foisted upon us and instead returning to or visiting for the very first time the pace for which God has designed us and the pace to which God has called us. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks, just three weeks to get us up to Thanksgiving. We're going to be going through this book so that we can all be equipped, we can all have the tools we need to really fully enjoy this most joyous time of the year and enjoy it the way God has intended for us to enjoy it. All right? Sound good? All right, let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for doing whatever it took that opened up the time for us, that allowed us to be here, that allowed us to come together as your ecclesia, as your called-out community. God, we thank you for really the wisdom of this author, John Mark Comer, and for some of his insights, and we thank you for the things that it will show us as we strive to go through this holiday season a little bit less stressed than before and draw closer to you than ever. God, we thank you for this time. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the series, three weeks, breaking down into three parts. The first part today we're going to talk about is the problem. So today I'm going to lay out the problem. Sorry, I'm apologizing up front. It's, I, I said to somebody a minute ago, this is going to feel the most TED talky of a sermon I've done in a long time. So, next week we'll talk about the solution, and then we'll finish up by learning about the four practices for unhurrying your life. So, if you can be here for all three, I, I, it would be good for you, and uh, you know I'd appreciate it, of course. So, if you got all that, let's now turn to the problem. Now, the author of our book, John Mark Comer, I'm going to just call him Comer when I have to say his name. Well, he started the book with a discussion. That he began with one of his mentors, and his mentor was a Christian author and a pastor by the name of John Ortberg. Does anybody remember John Ortberg? He wrote a bunch of Christian books. There's a picture of John Ortberg. I actually got to meet him a couple of weeks ago in Atlanta. So that was when pastors go to these conferences. It's kind of like going to Comic Con for for my son. Like you, you look for the famous people you know who wrote books and stuff, and you go, "Wow, can I get a selfie with you?" It's I, I know it's kind of weird. But here's the question Comer started with. He asked Ortberg this question. He said, what do I need to do to become the best version of myself? What do I need to do to become the me I want to be? Doesn't that sound TED talky? It does, I know. Now, even though it sounds TED talky, it is a question we want answered. It's a good question. I I know very few people who wouldn't want to know the answer to this question. So anyway, Ortberg, quoting a mentor of his own, a a Christian professor who's passed away by the name of Dallas Willard, Ortberg said this. Here's what you need to do to become the best best version of yourself. Ready? Here it is. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Comer says, "All right, got it. What else? What else you got? Give me another one." Ortberg says, "That's it. That's it. There's nothing else. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry." From your life. Now, the reason I opened up explaining to you about me, (laughs) that hit me, man. That stopped me in my tracks. As I just told you, my personality is built on hurry. My whole life revolves around hurry. I am hurry. That's who I am. And if I were asked the question we started out with, what do I need? To do to become the best me I want to be, that would not have been my answer. I would never have said that answer. And, and knowing you guys as I, as I do, I suspect you wouldn't have answered that way either. We, we might have answered in a different way, which is far more standard way. We, we might have said we need to focus more on our temper, or our ability to forgive, or maybe we need more education, or maybe We need to work on our health. Maybe we need to add a couple pounds. Maybe we need to drop a couple pounds. Maybe we need to just work on our fitness overall. You know, all the stuff we've been hearing for years, all the self-help stuff. But according to Dallas Willard, hurry keeps us from becoming not only the me we all want to be and the people God has designed us to be, but hurry is the root problem that underlies so many symptoms of toxicity in our world. Now, that's not how I would have answered the question. And I'm guessing that's not how you would have answered that question either. We might have been more inclined to say, oh, the problem with the world, oh, it's modernity or post-modernity. If you're a church person, you go, oh, the problem with the world, bad theology. So many people have bad theology. If, if you've been around the church even longer, you'll go, it's the prosperity gospel. That's the problem. Or you might say it's the destruction of the traditional family or the proliferation of porn or, or, or human trafficking. You might say that. That's the problem in the world. But we certainly never would have answered hurry. Hurry is the problem in the world. It's not the answer. In response to this notion, Comer noted that Satan, and remember, Satan is the Hebrew word for the adversary, so we describe Satan as the adversary in this world that pulls against us, being connected to God. He pointed out Satan doesn't just show up in our lives in the ways that we've been conditioned to believe he'll show up. We've all seen these images, you know, Adam Sandler, his little Nicky. Will Ferrell from Saturday Night Live, that's not how Satan shows up. He doesn't show up with the deep voice and the smoke behind him and the fire behind him and the pitchfork and the red skin and the, <laughs> you know. Comer points out that Satan is far more clever than we give him credit for. And today, you're far more likely to run into him in the form of getting an alert on your phone when you're reading your Bible, just to distract you. Or, or feeling compelled and, instead of spending quiet time with God to go on a Netflix binge for a few days. Don't you hate how Netflix guilts you? Like you watch it for a while and then it says, you can't possibly be still watching, can you? That's the question it asks you, right? And you have to like shame push the yes, yes, right? Satan comes along and tries to connect us back into that dopamine addiction that we get from Instagram. And TikTok, you know, they're designed to do that. They're designed to raise your dopamine so that you keep dopamines that feel-good chemical in your brain. And so every time you swipe through, every time you're looking at pictures you see another story, it's, ooh, that felt good, ooh, that felt good. You don't know. Satan, and this one might hit home for some, will be the thing that comes along to make you forego your family time in order to work on a Saturday. Or your time that you spend with your church family because there's a Sunday sporting event. I mean, that one hits home. The Christian author Corey Tenboom once said this if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And psychologist Carl Jung said, hurry is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. We are all victims of hurry. And you think about it, just you haven't done this study, but it's pretty easy. Whenever you ask somebody how they're doing, what's the most common response you hear? Good. Just busy. How many times have you said that this week? How are you doing? Good. Just busy. I say it every day because I feel it every single day. Now, you guys know my parents. They're back there. They're retired. In case you didn't know, they're retired. But many times, even they forego important things because they're just so busy. My retired parents. Oh they're, oh, they're busy. Oh, I can't do it. Got to go here. Got to go there. Got to see this person going to lunch with that person. It's always busy, busy, busy. In the Western world, which is basically the U.S., Latin America, Europe, parts of the Pacific Rim, everyone's busy. Everybody's busy. We're all the same. We're all busy. So Comer actually recognizes. He says, busyness in and of itself is not the bad thing. That, that's not bad. So it's good to be busy if you're productively busy. Jesus was certainly busy. But when our busyness results in our having too much to do and that forces us to always perpetually hurry in order to keep up with all that stuff. Now that's when things begin to get toxic. And for the followers of Jesus, for all the people who have gone to Jesus and said to him, Lord Jesus, I know, I know I'm a sinner, but I ask for your forgiveness for the times I violated all your laws, which I can't help. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you came back from the dead to defeat my sins. I know you ascended to heaven and promised to return one day to usher in God's kingdom here on earth. So God, now I want to turn away from those sins. I don't want to do them anymore. And I give you my heart. I give you my life. I want to follow you, not follow my own things. I want to trust you as my Lord and Savior. If you've done that, Living a life characterized by hurry can derail the God-centered life that our faith profession promised to deliver. So how? How does a hurried life derail our God-centered life? Well, think of it this way. What's the thing that has the highest value in Jesus' economy? If I said to you, Jesus is, fill in the sentence, what are you going to say? Love, right? When asked about God's greatest commandment, that's how Jesus answered in Matthew chapter 22. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Remember, that comes from the Hebrew Bible, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, the the call to worship. And love your neighbor as yourself. God is all about love. And love is very, very time-consuming. Living in a constant state of hurry doesn't leave any room for love. Hurry and love are wholly incompatible. Think about it. When are the times that you love the worst? When you're in a hurry. You ever rushing to get somewhere in your car and somebody sort of slows down in front of you? Do you feel the love? No, you don't. Moms and dads, how loving are you when you're trying to get your kids out of the house and into the van or the SUV to come to church? A few years ago, Christian comedian Ken Davis once joked about how he yelled to his own kids to get to church. Get in the car now! We gotta go to church to learn about the love of Jesus! Let's go! Man, I've done that so many times. Now look at this, when the Apostle Paul was defining love. You know, the famous love passage, if you're married in a Christian wedding ceremony, 1 Corinthians 13, you've heard it. We all do the love passages as pastors. Paul wrote this in that letter. What was the first word he used to describe love? What did he say? Love is patient. How does patience square with hurry? It doesn't. Throughout the scripture, our relationship with God is referred to using the Hebrew word, leket, and the Greek word in the New Testament, peripatheo, you want to guess what those mean? They mean walk. Our relationship with God is referred to, our, to as, as our walk with God, not our run with God, not our sprint with God, not our race with God. Jesus is love and love is patient and love can't thrive in an atmosphere of hurry as such. On one level, It can be said that hurry is of the devil. Love can't thrive in the atmosphere of hurry. And neither can joy and neither can peace. Two of the other core realities of the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus embodies all of them. Love and joy and peace. And all of them are incompatible with hurry. It's impossible to fully exist in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. In fact... Very little can be done with hurry that can't be done better without hurry. You go in for surgery, do you want your surgeon hurrying? No. When someone's caring for your car, do you want the mechanic to hurry? Hurry up, get it done, I don't care how well you do. No. We are, however, in the words of one theologian, a pathologically busy people. And Jesus indicated that's not the way he wants us to be with him. Remember the story from Luke 10, and you'll remember when I talk about it, Jesus was with his friends, two sisters, Mary and Martha, remember that? He was at Martha's home, remember the story, Martha was busy scurrying around, frantically tidying up, you know when you have relatives come over, friends come over, and you forgot, oh no, the dishes, and you're running around trying to clean things up and make it all nice, and your friends just want to be with you. And in the story, Mary sat down at Jesus' feet, so she could listen to Jesus, so she could bask In Jesus' love and wisdom. Do you remember which one of the sisters earned Jesus' praise? And which one got the lesson? You don't want to get the lesson. You don't want to be on the business side of the lesson. Luke 10, 41 to 42. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed. Or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. It's not the busyness. It's the soaking. So if you guess the sister that wasn't hurrying around and scurrying around, but rather the sister who was calmly and patiently spending her time with Jesus, if you guess that as your answer, you're starting to see it. You're starting to see where we're going here. We all need a spiritual slowdown in our lives. You with me so far? All right, moving on. Now, whenever we want to Change the way that we've been doing things, it's always best to first understand how we got to where we are in the first place, right? So let's spend a few minutes looking at how it is that we've all fallen into the hurry trap. And this is, when I was going through all this stuff, this was just mind-boggling. Now we talk about this from time to time, and I don't think that anybody's going to dispute it. We talk about the fact that our pace of life in 2022 has gotten out of control, but in the words of one of the great rock poets of our day, or my day, Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire. Like, we didn't do this. This was not on us. Human beings have always striven to control their world and harness time for their benefit. As far back as 200 BC, the Roman playwright Plautus. now you can tell your friends when you go out for lunch, when you go to work tomorrow, our pastor brought up the Roman philosopher-playwright Plautus. In the sermon, after the invention of the sundial, this is great, Plato said this, the gods confound the man who first found out how to distinguish hours, confound him too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. If you work in a job where you have to bill by the hour, you really feel that one. When I was billing by the hour, I remember just having to keep track of every little 10-minute segment and write it down. Who can I charge that 10-minute segment to? Time moved on in the 6th century AD. Benedictine monks organized the monastery around seven times of prayer each day. And by the 12th century the mechanical clock was invented. So the monks used the mechanical clock to more precisely nail down their prayer times. In 1370 AD, the world's first public clock tower was erected in the town square in Cologne, Germany. So now it wasn't just in the monasteries anymore, it was in the town square where the people could see it and begin to use the clock. Now before all of these time-measuring devices were invented, Before all of these attempts to harness the hours came out, the marking of time followed natural rhythms. People woke up when the sun came up. People retired when the sun went down. The days were longer in summer and shorter in winter. We were were in the Scandinavian countries this summer and we were talking to somebody uh, when we were in Iceland. In Iceland, uh, we were there in July, June and July, and the sun never went down. The sun didn't go down, never set. And so the people said, when it's summer, we work and work and work, and when it's winter, the sun never rises, they never get out of bed. So if you have to go to work, you go to work, you come back home, you lie down on the couch, or in bed, and that's it, that's all you do. I mean, that's what people used to do. Hurry was reserved for emergency situations. That's what our adrenal system is about, and fight or flight, and all that sort of stuff. That's, that's reserved for an emergency. That's the way God designed the body to be. But with the invention of the clock came the introduction of artificial time. And before long, people were awakened, not after being well-rested, which is dictated by our natural rhythms, our circadian rhythms, but after being shocked out of rest by the blare of an alarm, right? Did everybody wake up in a start this morning with their alarm? I did. It was like, ah, like that, because the time change and all that stuff. When the sun set, our rhythms We're all in line with God's design. But the clock was designed by man, and it co-opted that control from God, and it gave it to other people. It gave it to our employers. It gave it to the people who need us to be somewhere. And they became demanding masters. Here's an interesting little fact. Prior to 1879, do you know how long the average person slept? Anybody? Eleven. No Stranger Things fans out there? Okay. There. 11 hours a night. 11 hours a night before then. For reference, today, the average person sleeps how many hours a night? Average? Seven. Many of us sleep a lot less than seven hours a night. Now we know, at least, why we feel so tired all the time. But things change for good in the year 1879. Do you guys know what happened in the year 1879. Thomas Edison invented the first commercially viable light bulb. People have been trying to invent it up until that point. He's the one who said, got it. Now we can sell it to everybody. Well, after that, people were no longer bound to rise and go to bed with the sun and the seasons. So from there, technology picked up its pace. In-home electricity, plumbing, telephones, all of that eventually became standard. All of this is way before our time. Not you, mom and dad, but all of this is way before our time. The horse was traded in for the horseless carriage. By the way, the Christians pushed back against lights, carriages, all that sort of stuff. Before long, air travel closed the distances between places. People who had never before left their town or never before ventured more than 100 miles from where they were born were able to go places that had been beyond their wildest imaginations. These changes to people's lives were so radical, this is really interesting, that in 1967, which is not all that long ago, the U.S. Senate subcommittee, a U.S. Senate subcommittee, Famously predicted, this is in 1967, they predicted that by 1985, the average American would work only 22 hours a week. That's what they predicted. I know, we're all laughing, right? And they said we would only work for 27 weeks out of the year. Everybody thought that the future would have too much leisure time, not too little leisure time. But that didn't happen, did it? No, it did not. In fact, what happened? The opposite happened. Leisure time has gone way down. And today, the average American works nearly four more weeks than they did in 1979. Leisure used to be a sign of wealth. It's really interesting. People with money were depicted in advertisements playing tennis or boating or sipping a Chardonnay, sitting around the club. Now it's totally different. You watch advertising trends and you can see what's happening in the culture. Now busyness is the sign of wealth. Now when you see the ads for the Rolex and the Mercedes and all this sort of stuff, it's a fast-moving executive in his or her corner office. It's, it's a person wearing the expensive suit or going to a trendy downtown club in the wee hours of the morning. And That's, that's what wealth is now. It's busyness. A century ago... The less you worked, the more status you had. Now it's completely opposite. The more you sit around and relax, the less status you have. You ever heard someone called a layabout or a lazy whatever? But for our purposes, it's even more dire. During this same period, Comer said, we have witnessed the death of the Sabbath in American life. Now this is really, this blew my mind. Until as late as the 1960s up north and the 1980s, 80s or even the 90s here in the South, blue laws forced businesses to be closed on the Sabbath. We still have a remnant of that. But I can remember when I was a kid having to get all our shopping done by the end of Saturday because Publix was closed on Sundays. And for all of that, now Publix is a national phenomenon. Everybody knows about Publix now. You didn't used to shop there on Sunday because it was closed. The Jenkins family was very devout, very Christian, and they just, they didn't open up. But a lot like Chick-fil-A. And that didn't change until 1983. When I was young, we used to drive up to the mountains to go on vacation. I grew up in Miami, we would drive to the mountains, North Carolina, Tennessee. And I remember we had to be kind of settled in by Saturday night because there was nothing happening on Sundays in the Deep South. Like, nothing happening. You couldn't shop, you couldn't, you couldn't go anywhere except church. You could go, through, you could go to church. Of course, back then I didn't know what church was, so I had no idea that was happening where I was. And no stores were open late, let alone 24 hours. This is interesting. In nineteen forty-six, a company known as Totem Stores, and they were called totem stores, it's interesting because the owner had visited a Native American community and bought a totem pole and decided he's going to use it for his stores. So that that's kind of how that started. Totem stores, they sold ice, milk, bread, and ice cream. During that year, in 1946, Totem stores changed the name of their franchise to what? 7 Eleven, to reflect the new hours of operation from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. And people thought, nobody's gonna, pff, no one's getting up that early to shop. No one's gonna be out that late to shop. It was unprecedented at the time. Even in the lifetime of my sons, my sons are 26 and 28. Our area, just right here in Boca and close by, we went from not having any youth sports scheduled on Sundays to having Sundays be fully scheduled with games and events, just like any other day. And our culture never even took a second to consider what these changes might do to our souls. This is interesting. It's a long quote I'll read you. Andrew Sullivan wrote in an essay for the New York Times Magazine entitled... I used to be a human being. He he had this analysis, which is quite provocative. Here's what he wrote. The Judeo-Christian tradition recognized a critical distinction and tension between noise and silence, between getting through the day and getting a grip on one's whole life, the Sabbath. The Jewish institution co-opted by Christianity was a moment of calm to reflect on our lives under the light of eternity. The Sabbath helped define much of Western public life once a week for centuries, only to dissipate with scarcely a passing regret into the commercial cacophony of the past couple of decades. It reflected a now-battered belief that a sustained spiritual life is simply unfeasible for most mortals without these refuges from noise and work to buffer us and remind us who we really are. We lost the Sabbath, and we lost with it more than a day of rest. We lost with it a day for our souls to open up to God. In one generation, one generation, Sunday evolved from a national day of rest and worship to a day of running errands, to a day of buying things, to a day of running around with our kids, playing sports and activities, to a day of getting ready to go for Monday in our longer work week. All of this built its way up to its zenith in the year 2007, which is not that long ago, 2007. Comer says, when the history books are written, they will point to 2007 as an inflection point, on par with 1440 A.D. What happened in 1440 A.D.? That's the year Gutenberg invented the printing press. That's the year that the Bible and later all the books we read were able to be in our hands and not just in the hands of scholars who could handwrite them on parchment and so on. That invention of the printing press set the stage for the Protestant Reformation. It set the stage for the Enlightenment. It transformed Europe. It transformed the entire world. That was a big deal. So what happened that was on par with that? What happened in 2007? A Californian by the name of Steve Jobs introduced the world to the iPhone. It's also interesting, in 2007, that's the same year Facebook was made available to anybody if you had an email address. That's the year that a micro-blogging app by the name of Twitter became its own platform. That's the year that both the cloud and the app store came online, and also a bunch of other technologies, all in 2007. Did you guys realize that it was that recent? That's what brought us into the digital age. I started here at Hammock Street Church in 2009. It's amazing to me how much the world has changed since then. Think of how the world has changed between then and now. When we started at Hammock Street Church, none of us had smartphones. None of us. Unless you were one of those really early adopters. None of us had, had Wi-Fi access. Why would you need Wi-Fi? We had a computer that was plugged into your office. You didn't need to carry it around. But now, we can't imagine living without Wi-Fi, without smartphones. We even have it on airplanes. You ever go on an airplane and you can't connect to the Wi-Fi and you're angry? What the heck? How can I not have Wi-Fi when I'm flying through this tube, one comedian says, in the middle of the sky, 30,000 feet in the air, magically going from one place to another. No Wi-Fi? Ugh! We're so put out. In 2007, the relatively new thing called the internet went from desktops to our pockets. And together, these things have all changed the world, and they've changed us with it. We've gone from a species that, that used to live in harmony with the rhythm of nature to one that touches our phones. You're not going to like this. You know how many times we touch our phones every day? An average of 2,617 times for a total of 2.5 hours. And by the way, if you're a millennial or a Gen Z, double that double that. And they're not helping us. Having our phones, like we all think, oh, they're making us smarter and, and all this sort of stuff. It's not helping us. One study found that simply being in the same room as our phones, even if they're not on, this is wild, will reduce a person's working memory and problem solving skills. How about that? They're so distracting that just knowing they're in the room is enough to distract us. In other words, our phones are making us dumber. Our smartphones are making us dumber. Now, add to that, posting on social media, checking our email, looking stuff up, watching Insta Reels, watching TikToks, and of course, binge-watching our streaming services, and you can begin to see where all our time has gone. And this is no accident. This was by design. Our devices and the apps on our devices are designed to steal so much of our time. That's the way they're made. They're made to do that. They're made to get us addicted. This is a crazy quote. Sean Parker, who was the first president of Facebook, he, he, he now he's kind of moved away from the space, and he calls himself a conscientious objector to social media. But in an interview with Axios, this is what he admitted, quite begrudgingly, but here's what he said. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about, this is how they built them. How do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means that we need to give, uh, we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop. I get validation. I put more out. I get more validation. I put more out and so on. Exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with. Because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. Did you realize that's how they designed it? And that's why they designed it. And we all use it. And with all of this, guess what's happening to our attention span? It's dropping. This is crazy. In the year 2000, while all of us older folk were worried about Y2K, okay, this is before the digital revolution, this is before 9-11. During that time, our attention spans, on average, were 12 seconds. We could pay attention to something for 12 seconds. I'm sure mine was about two seconds, but okay, so 12 seconds. Since then, on average, our, our attention spans have gone down to eight seconds. Now, as a reference point, Comer points this out. As a reference point, if we're down to eight seconds, the, ref- the the attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. We are losing to goldfish. Our phones are not tools for us; we are tools being used by everybody who is vying for our attention, and it's all raising our stress levels, and it's causing us to hurry our lives away. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Yeah. I'm not done yet. In 1936, another literary prophet, a guy named Aldous Huxley, who wrote a book called Brave New World, wrote of man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. As people, we have an appetite to be distracted. And in Brave New World, he envisioned a future dystopia, the opposite of a utopia, dystopia. But it wasn't of a dictatorship, but it was a dystopia of distraction, where sex and entertainment and busyness tear apart the fabric of society. That's pretty prescient, don't you think? It's like he could see into the future. We are now addicted to distraction, and we're addicted to its evil cousin, busyness, and it has reached critical mass, and we haven't even touched about what bad intended people are doing to us through this addiction. Suffice it to say, though, it's just not good. It's not good at all. And and listen, I'm not suggesting that it's all bad or it's all deadly. I use my smartphone, I binge watch Netflix, I do all those things. I'm not suggesting that we throw out, we eschew all technology. I'm not suggesting we go back and live off the land like the Pennsylvania Dutch, or like the Amish, or like those people who drop off the grid and hunt and forage for a living, I'd last about a day and a half in that world. I'm not suggesting that we we go into the types of practices that some religious communities have, and there are a few, the Amish, the Mennonites, the Orthodox Jews in our area, but when we do look at them, we can catch a glimpse of a society that is more focused on the rhythms of life, Created by our Heavenly Father. So, what we really need to do is we need to kind of reorient ourselves with what all of this distraction, addiction, and pace of life is doing with our souls. We need to start paying attention. We need to see that it's harming us and hurting us. Now, psychologists and mental health professionals are now talking about the epidemic of the modern world and they're calling it hurry sickness. They've characterized hurry sickness as a disease. Everything's a disease. Hurry sickness is now a disease. And here's how the doctor who discovered it defined it. A continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish and achieve more and more things, or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Another definition said it this way. A behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. Do you guys have an eye twitch? I have an eye twitch. Never... It's been bad lately, too. And do you want to know when this definition came out? In the 1950s. 1950s! Okay, so do you suffer from hurry sickness? Let's do a little diagnostic. Ready? Do you suffer from any of these symptoms? Moving from one checkout line to another because it looks shorter and faster. I'm guessing from your laughter that the answer to that is affirmative. Yes? All right. How about this one? Counting the cars in front of you and getting in the lane that has the fewest, or is going the fastest. Do you do that? Do you analyze the cars? That's a BMW, I'll get behind him. That's a 1986 Corolla, mm-mm. How about this one? Multitasking to the point of forgetting one of the tasks. You're doing so many things, you're like, Why did I, what, 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 wait, what did I start doing again? I, so many times I'll go online, I'm researching, and I'll go, oh, I gotta look it up on, you know, on, the, on the internet, and I'll go, oh, with news. Oh, here's that blogger, oh, how'd you do? I scored a hundred, yeah, okay. I'm gonna keep going, because here's a list of symptoms. Let me see if any of these describe you, ready? Irritability. Do you get mad or annoyed, or perhaps perhaps irritated just a little too easily, do you? You might have hurry sickness. Hypersensitivity. Does it take only a minor comment to hurt your feelings, or a little unexpected bump to totally ruin your day? Ruin my schedule, that's the end of my day. I'm just grouch for the rest of the day. How about this one, restlessness? When you actually try to take a moment and relax, you know, you do one of those things you learned about on TikTok, breathe in for five, hold it for eight, breathe out for seven. Do you find you can't do it? Did you ever try to take a Sabbath and it just failed? You just couldn't take that Sabbath? Do you try to read your Bible, but you go, this is boring? Do you try to relax and watch TV, but... While you're watching TV, you're also reading something else and you're doing a puzzle or you're surfing the web or you're looking at your phone or you're scrolling your Instagram or you're scrolling your TikTok. Do you do that? How about workaholism? Do you just not know when to stop? Are you not able to stop? Do you find that whenever you do get home, you're just dead? You're totally spent. You're wiped out. You're wrung out. You have nothing good left for the people who love you. Your spouse, your kids, your friends, nothing. Emotional numbness. Do you find it impossible to even feel pain? To even feel your own pain? To even feel the pain of somebody else? Out of order priorities. Do you often feel like just disconnected from your identity, who you are? Do you feel disconnected from what you feel you were called to do? Are you always feeling like you are a victim of the, they call it the tyranny of the urgent? Something that's, like, think of a pot boiling over on the stove. Like, you have to attend to that right away. It's screaming at you, come, fix me. That's the tyranny of the urgent. Do you fail to care for your body and your health? Do you find you don't have time for the basics? You can't get eight hours of sleep. You can't exercise every day. You can't eat healthy, home-cooked food. You can't live without major stimulants. Six, seven cups of coffee energy drinks, whatever? Do you find that you, you, just, you just don't give yourself any sp- uh, any space, any margin, nothing like that? That's what happens when you talk with your hands. Do you gain weight Then you don't want to? Do you get sick multiple times a year? Do you wake up and you're really tired? Do you fail to sleep well? Do you live off of those four horsemen of the industrialized food apocalypse, caffeine, sugar... Processed carbs and energy drinks, throw in their alcohol. Is that your diet? (laughs) Escapist behaviors. Are you too tired to do what's actually good for you? Are you too tired to do what's actually life-giving for your soul? Do you instead turn to distractions like overeating, over-drinking, binge-watching Netflix, browsing social media, surfing the web, or looking at things you shouldn't be looking at? slippage of spiritual disciplines because of your lack of time? Have you just cut it out? Cut out your quiet time with God in the morning? Shaved it down to 15 seconds? Have you stopped praying altogether? Have you stopped coming to church? (laughs) Saw what I did there? Yeah, okay. Have you stopped coming to church as often as you should? Finally, isolation. Do you feel disconnected from God? You feel like you don't spend enough time with them? Do you feel disconnected from other people? Do you feel disconnected from your own soul? All right, how'd you score? Out of the 10 who had five? Who had seven? Who had all of them? Yeah. Now you know why I didn't want to preach this message? Well, here, don't feel guilty. I know, I should have said that up front. Don't feel guilty because you're in very good company but you need to know this as well, the guilty feeling isn't coming from God. It's not God that's making you feel guilty. And even though I said all this stuff, I'm not making you feel guilty either. See, my point in taking us all through this as we begin this series is just to point out this, an over-busy, hurried life is the new normal in our world, and it's killing us, and it's toxic, it's poison, It's killing us physically and emotionally and spiritually. Hurry kills relationships. Love takes time. Hurry kills joy. Hurry kills gratitude. Hurry kills appreciation. Hurry kills wisdom. Hurry kills peace. Hurry kills all that we hold dear. Spirituality, health, marriage, family, Thoughtful work, creativity, generosity—name a value. Hurry, you'll kill it. Hurry is a sociopathic predator loose in our society. But see, now we're aware of it, and awareness is the first step towards healing. Our lives are the sum total of the things we devote our attention to, right? Our lives, as they say, are perfectly designed to get the results we're currently getting. They're perfect. We do what we do, we get what we get, and that doesn't change. And they say, if you want to make some changes in your life, you've got to make some changes in your life. Which brings us back to Jesus. As apprentices of Jesus, that's what the word disciple means. It's an apprentice. We're studying under Jesus. We're connecting together with Jesus. If we can begin to turn the bulk of our attention back to Jesus... And take it off our devices and take it off of the 24-7 stream of poison coming from the ubiquitous worlds, the, the worlds that are everywhere, the worlds of bad news and political polemics and celebrity nonsense and the manufactured outrage of the fear mongers who try to exert control over our attention as well as our resources. If we can get away from all that, then we can start to get back on the road to spiritual health. And it all starts with the ruthless elimination of hurry. Jesus said this. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? So let me ask you this question, and then we'll pray and close. Would you like to rediscover your soul, especially during this holiday season? Thanksgiving is coming up. Christmas is right around the corner. Well, if you would, please come back next week, and we'll talk about how to begin to do so. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, ouch. We didn't want to hear it, but we needed to hear it. We've been so distracted that we forgot all about you. So as we work our way through this series and as we begin to pay more attention to the distractions and become more intentional about our lives... We would ask that you would guide us and draw us closer and closer to you. Not because you need us to, but because you love us and it's your desire for us. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the community you're building around us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.